name's Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Book of the Month Club is this week's sponsor. They're offering listeners uh, their first book for only $5 with code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y. Again, that's code Zibby for your first book for $5 to Book of the Month Club, which, by the way, is amazing. I subscribe every month. I get to pick from five of their favorite books. Um, most of the time, one of them is is by an author I've had on my podcast, and then it just arrives. I've given it as a gift. I adore it, and you will too. So think of it for gifts, and um, for sure, go on bookofthemonth.com and subscribe yourself. I'm thrilled to be talking to Lisa Jewell today, who is the internationally best-selling author of 17 and a half novels, including the New York Times bestseller, Then She Was Gone, as well as I Found You, The Girls in the Garden, and The House We Grew Up In. Her latest book, The Family Upstairs, is already a number one bestseller in the UK and is a book of the month club pick. Her novels have sold 2 million copies around the world. She currently lives in London with her husband and two daughters. So welcome, Lisa. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Oh, thank you for inviting me. So can you please start by telling listeners what your latest novel, The Family Upstairs, is about? Okay, so The Family Upstairs, it's about, well, it's a story told from the point of view of three different people. But the first person we meet is Libby, Libby Jones. And Libby is 25 years old and she lives in a small town just outside London and she sells designer kitchens for a living. She's a very sensible girl. She's a very organized girl and she doesn't really do spontaneity or surprising things. But she was adopted as a baby and she's known all her life that on her 25th birthday she'll find out what her birth parents have been holding in trust for her. She's got no idea what it is. And we meet her in the first chapter opening a letter from the solicitors to tell her what this is, her bequest from her birth parents. And she discovers that she has inherited an eight-bedroom mansion in Chelsea overlooking the River Thames, which is a quite quite extraordinary thing. But she also finds out when she goes to visit the house with the solicitor that this house comes with a whole host of terrible, terrible dark secrets. She was actually found as a baby in a cot, wide awake, gurgling, well looked after, well fed, clean and happy. While downstairs in the kitchen, there were three dead bodies on the kitchen floor dressed in black robes and a very strange suicide side note suggesting they might have done some sort of cult-related mass suicide. Yeah, so that's what Libby is landed with in the first couple of chapters of the book. There's much more to it, but I'm sure we can talk about that as we go on. I love how in one of the videos that you have online, you show a picture of a house in Chelsea, as you imagine this house to look like from the outside. That was a great... Yeah, that's because I'm, I'm a lazy researcher. I don't do research. I, I could have got off my bum and got a tube over to Chelsea and found a nice house in real life. But instead, I did a Google image search. <laughs> but I thought, that looks like the right sort of house. And it's strange when my publishers actually said, we're going to take you to that house. And we're going to film you outside it. It's like, oh, oh it's the first time I've ever been there. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. I love that. So you've written 18 novels, correct? 17 and a half. 17 and a half. Okay, sorry. Yes. <laughs> How do you keep coming up with the ideas? So this was a fantastic book and plot twists and kept you going on the edge of your seat. But this is like you're like you've done this a billion times already. How are you? How I do you know. keep coming up with these ideas? It's a bit hit and miss, really. I. Yeah, I don't, I'm not one of those writers who has a notebook full of ideas. I know people who do and they'll sort of, you know, when when it comes time to write their next book, they'll go to their notebook and think, oh, that was quite a good idea I had two and a half years ago. Maybe I'll go back to that one. I literally have one idea a year and sometimes I don't even have one idea a year. Sometimes I will have finished a book and it will come to day one 
of starting the next book. And I will literally not have any idea what I'm going to be writing about. And then I have to go for a long walk and just sort of slap myself around the face a bit until something comes to me. So that for me is one of the hardest things. And so what I tend to do, because I don't have a lot of ideas, which is such a myth about writers that we've all got all these ideas, when I get even the tiniest glimmer of an idea, I jump on it like a, like a lunatic, like a mad woman, like almost bodily throw myself on it. Right. <laughs> You're mine. I'm going to make you work. I'm going to do something with you. And that was the case with, with this book. I very much jumped on something really tiny, which was a glimpse of a woman in Nice in the south of France when I was there two summers ago on holiday with my family. And there is a chapter in the book where a character called Lucy sneaks her children into a shower block of a posh private beach club in the south of France. And that was based on seeing this woman in real life sneaking her children into the shower block of a posh beach club in the south of France, which maybe most people would have seen such a a vignette and not thought anything about it. But I saw this vignette and couldn't stop thinking about it. And I kept thinking this woman looked terribly interesting, that she looked like she had a backstory. She looked like bad things had happened to her. And I thought I could write a book about this woman. So that was the starting point for this one. So it was tiny. And of course, you know, since that moment, it's grown layers. You know, you've read the book. So you've seen how many layers there are beyond just a woman taking her children into a shower block. Yeah, that's such a tiny moment in the context of the rest of the story. But how interesting that that's what started it. It's just like you never know. It's amazing. Yeah. But it can be bigger things than that as well. You know, there's the sort of what if scenario as well. So then she was gone, which was three novels back from this one. The starting point from that was not it was a, a bigger seed. It was just the idea of what if your child had been missing for years and then you found out that they'd been living next door the whole time. So something like that, you know. So yeah, it, it, it's, it could be anything, small or big. But yes, I'm very greedy for ideas. So the minute something comes, I'm on it. <laughs> so one, All of, over it. <laughs> one of the chapters, which was told from Henry's point of view, you wrote the following. You said, Bertie hasn't known whom else to turn to. As an adult man now of 41 years old, I have often used this refrain to get people to do what I want them to do. I didn't know who else to turn to. It gives the person you're trying to manipulate nowhere to go. Their only option is to capitulate, which is exactly what my mother did. So talk to me about this a little, and I'm wondering, have you ever used this to your own advantage? Okay, this is really interesting because this wasn't me. This was, and I very, very rarely take things you know, when, when you're friends with a writer, you're constantly thinking they might be using bits of you to, to put into their books. And always, oh, you know, is that based on someone we know? And it, it never is. It's never based on anyone we know. And it's never based on anything that anybody I know has done or said. But in this in this exact example, this was my, my friend. My friend said this to me. We were talking about the conundrum. And she said, what you have to do is you have to just go to that person and say, I didn't know who else to turn to. And then they'll have to do... <laughs> And it never, it's not, you know, that wouldn't necessarily be my approach to a situation, but it was her very, very clever, manipulative approach. And did you, did you take her advice? It's not really my style. I don't like putting people in corners and making people feel uncomfortable and pressurized. But, you know, this wasn't me. This was Birdie. And it was absolutely perfect. No, it wasn't Birdie. It was Martina talking to Birdie. Um, So it was the absolutely perfect person to use that little gift that my friend gave me, which I don't, I don't think I ever told her I put it in there. (laughs) I thought maybe I could use it with my kids. Like I really need somebody to get me that water bottle and I have no one else to turn to. Let me just test it out. It's good, isn't it? It's a really good one. You never know. I'm going to just store it in my back pocket. 
Yeah. <laughs> you also have this passage where Lucy, the character you were just referring to, came from the woman taking the shower in the beach club. She's walking through the house where previously she had been abused by her husband and she has to go back and I won't say why, but yeah. for various reasons, she has to find herself there. And you wrote the following. You wrote, she averts her gaze as she walks away from the spot at the foot of the stone staircase where she ended up with a broken arm and a fractured rib when Michael pushed her when she was four months pregnant with Marco. She averts it from the spot on the wall and the corridor where Michael banged her head repeatedly because he'd had a bad day at work, or so he explained an hour later when he was trying to stop her from leaving because he loved her so much because he couldn't live without her. Oh, the irony, because here he is, married to someone else and utterly and entirely alive. Talk to me about this passage. Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess it's a trope, isn't it? Writing about abusive relationships. I've not, I've never been in a physically re- abusive relationship. I've been in, a, in a, a mentally, psychologically abusive relationship. And I don't know. It's just one of those things that as a writer, it's really interesting to get your teeth into it, to imagine how you would feel if you had found yourself in that position of being, you know, in her example, in a long, long marriage with someone who treated her like that, someone who tried to kill her and was, yeah, physically that violent. So, yeah, that whole, that, writing those scenes, because I think there's two or three scenes set where Lucy goes back to yeah. this guy's house. And there's a very particular reason why she has to keep, like, the, you know, her worst nightmare come true and she never wanted to see him again. They were really easy chapters to write. They were, it's a horrible thing to say, but they were kind of juicy because it's all there, isn't it? And I was just with her when she was walking into the house and I was looking at the house through her eyes and imagining all the memories, you know, the shocks and the pain. And yeah, so, the, so those passages were incredibly easy and exciting to write from a writer's point of view. It just seems so visual to me. I can like feel, yeah. you know, you could feel like as if you're, I don't know, doing one of those map you know, the maps where you can like actually have a 360 view yeah, if you turn yeah. yourself around. That's how I felt in that moment yeah, with that's, Lucy. That's how I felt writing it, I very yeah. much. And even while we're sit- sitting here talking about it now, yeah, I'm there. I'm there in that hallway. I'm looking at the bottom step. I can see the steps and I can see the wall and I can feel how she was feeling. So, yeah, it's very, very piquant, very real. And I guess all of us have some sort of place where something unpleasant or traumatic or something has happened. And then you go back yeah. and how do you feel again? So... Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, I was going to use an example from my recent life, but it's so pathetic. No, give it to us. Well, I moved out of my house for eight months to have renovations done. And we rented this beautiful, beautiful apartment up the road, which we were terribly excited about living in because it was very luxurious. And it ended up being eight months of hell because of the neighbors in this building were just so obnoxious and spiteful and horrible. And still now, even if I just see you know, and it's quite close. It's only a few streets up from here. And I can't walk past that street anymore because my blood runs cold and I just, dark shadow envelops me. So yeah, we've all got those places, even if it's not quite as horrific as in Lucy's case. You also, speaking of another room that you actually feel, you really did a good job of making people feel like they were in when Libby and Miller find themselves trapped overnight in a room and can't get out. I literally was sitting there reading, like my heart was pounding. I was like, (laughs) I can't have a panic attack reading this book. This is not good. Like, this is not my life. I am just reading. I can close the book if I need to. (laughs) But you captured that. And I felt like they were pretty chill relative to how I felt about them in that situation. Yes, I think I got them just to peek 
just as they were about to peak, as they were probably about to start screaming and banging on doors and having panic attacks and what have you, just at that moment, I got to them with, you know, no spoilers, but I took them out of that situation at just the moment where they might have been about to get terribly messy. <laughs> I don't think it's that big a spoiler. I mean, it was early enough in the book that you know that they're, they're going to, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Well, yeah, anyway, yeah. whatever. I'm not exactly. <laughs> Anyway, I'll just move on from that. So Henry and Finn, two of the other characters who lived in the house, Finn says, I know I'm so worried I'm going to spoil something, so I (laughs) don't want to say anything. But anyway, Finn says to Henry in one conversation, all men are weak. That's the whole bloody trouble with the world. Too weak to love properly, too weak to be wrong. And then Henry thinks, my breath caught at the power of that statement. I immediately knew it to be the truest thing I'd ever heard. The weakest of men lay at the root of every bad thing that had ever happened. So tell me more about that. Is that what you believe? Um, Another friend, perhaps? <laughs> that's, no, I can't say that's come from a friend. That just is one of those things that just suddenly lurched out of my psyche and onto the page. And I think I probably do believe it to a certain extent, particularly the world we're living in at the moment, which is appears to be full of some very weak, narcissistic, dreadful, pathetic men who seem to be hell-bent on spoiling everything for everyone. Yeah, I haven't, I can put something like that in a novel through a character without having to analyze it too deeply because I'm not speaking for myself. So therefore, I can think that sounds good. And I think there is a certain amount of truth and depth to that. But I'm not going to now extrapolate into some sort of long analysis of whether that's true or not and examples through history and research and statistics. And But I think, yeah, I very much that came from me through a character, but that came from me because I think on a certain fundamental level, I do believe it's true. But I can't back it up with research. That's okay. I wasn't looking for, I was not looking for statistics. I was just wondering if that's something that you happen to believe. But yeah. It's okay. Say, we, I won't I, delve too deep. I won't, I'll let it just go. I don't want to offend my male readers. <laughs> so you had uh, one of the most memorable lines in the book was in your acknowledgments, and you ended like this in the acknowledgments. And lastly, thank you to the two double vodka and tonics that saw oh, me yeah. through the last three chapters of this book late on a Friday night and helped me find the last few lines that I knew were hidden away in there somewhere. Cheers. <laughs> that was <laughs> yes, awesome. Yeah, you want to hear about that? Yeah, I'd love to. Oh, that was, that was amazing. So I was rushing, rushing, rushing for my deadline. And I really wanted to get this book finished by the end of the week. And it was Friday and about 6 p.m. And I wrote while the children were at home. And I never normally write while the children are at home. Normally, the minute they get home from school, laptops shut and I'm, I'm done. But I thought, no, I want this wrapped up before the weekend. So I wrote the last chapter by about 6 p.m., I walked off thinking, oh, I finished my book. And then I thought, I really haven't finished my book. That was the wrong ending. That's not how this book should have ended. The the scene I'm talking about, since you've read it, is the scene when they're in the restaurant on celebrating Libby's 26th birthday. And it just felt pat and bland. And everybody's, you know, I can't say because it'll be a spoiler. And then being 6 p.m. on a Friday night, I always celebrate 6 p.m. on a Friday night with a double vodka and tonic. And I did this. And the minute I had it, I just needed to get straight back to the manuscript. And so I opened up my laptop again <laughs> and just wrote this chapter, which, I, you know, it's, it's hard to be objective as a, as a writer. But I felt very strongly that I'd made the book, that that chapter was what totally completed the book and gave it depth and meaning and everything that it needed for it to be a fully satisfying read. But so, yeah. 
vodka. Vodka did that. Well, thank you, Vodka, for that fabulous last chapter that is, like, haunting me, and now I can't, like, get it out of my mind. So thank you for that. It it haunts me as well. Right? Oh, my gosh. I'm totally haunted by it. (laughs) (laughs) So I heard somewhere that someone offered you a free dinner if you could write three chapters of a book. This was, like, a dare. This is how you started to write. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. I was 27, maybe even 26. I was a secretary. In fact, I was an out-of-work secretary because I just lost my job. And I was very much not the sort of girl who had any grand ambitions. I, I, I didn't go to university. I didn't have a degree. I had no you know, it wasn't like Libby in the book. I didn't have a career plan. I was very much just going to keep on working as a secretary and see how much money I could possibly earn doing that. And yeah, so then I was out of work and I had this amazing conversation with a friend where she said something that I think everyone should say to someone when they've just lost their job. Because I said, I'm going to sign up with some temping agencies for a while. I'm not ready to go out and get another full-time job. And she said, you know, a lot of people use redundancy as an opportunity to change the direction of their life. Well, you know, they can use it as an opportunity. Is there something deep down inside that you've always wanted to do? And because I've been a very bookish little girl and it was something I'd wanted to do when I was eight years old. I just found myself saying, well, I think I might like to write a book, which was a very strange thing for me to have said because I'd never really thought it. And yeah, my friend, she did not laugh. She did not say, don't be ridiculous. She said, why don't you just write three chapters and see see where it goes? And if you write three chapters, I'll take you out for dinner to your favorite restaurant. And I did, and she did. And that was the first three chapters of my first novel, which was a massive success, a huge bestseller over here in the UK. And here I am 20 years later. So... <laughs> That's an amazing story. Some conversations really do have the power to change a whole life. And that was one of them. Are you still friends with her? I am still friends with her. I had dinner with her on Sunday night, in fact. She's Aww. awesome. That's amazing. <laughs> Love stories like that. You mentioned yeah. that at three o'clock when your kids come home from school, I think you said three, or maybe I was just thinking that was my life. But anyway, you said when your kids come home from school, you shut down the computer and that's it. So tell me about your writing process and maybe how it's changed over the years you've been writing since before you had kids. When and where do you like to do it? Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, I'm just putting a bit of innuendo in that question. I, yeah, so I started writing, as you say, before I had children, which meant that I just had all day. I've been working nine to five jobs all my life. So it just made sense to me to write from nine to five. And then I had my first baby in 2003 and thought I would never write another book because how could I possibly write a book with a baby in the house? And then I managed to write a whole book in an hour and a half a day while she was napping. So ever since then, you know, and your, your little your little bubbles of oxygen get bigger and bigger as your children get bigger and bigger. My children don't get home from school till 4.30. So I'm almost back to the possibility of doing a nine to five, but I will never do that again because I now know that I don't need to sit at my desk for six, seven, eight hours. So yeah, I spend a lot of time at home doing stuff on my computer. There's an awful lot of stuff involved behind the scenes that's not writing novels when you're a writer. I, I, a bit of housework, managed to squeeze a bit of housework in. <laughs> and then I will most often take my laptop into a coffee shop and do my actual writing there, because then you've got that feeling of space and removed from the domestic bubble, which is quite important sometimes. If it's raining, I'll probably just stay at home and write at the kitchen table. But yeah, so I do a thousand words a day, every day, generally in the afternoon. And yeah, 
it takes me about two to three hours and that's that's my day. The important thing for me when I'm writing though is my life has to be really really boring. <laughs> I, uh, it, it, it's yeah, just having too much stuff in the diary, chopping and changing, and not being in the same place, or not having a you know that that sort of flexibility is yeah, that kind of puts me off my stride a bit. It's very important to me that my days are dull and empty and routine, <laughs> <laughs> which they are at the moment. As well. <laughs> Why writers must have the most boring lives ever. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so at this pace, so if you're doing a thousand words a day, five days a week, 5,000, I'm trying to do the Correct. math of how many words you're writing every year. So about 25,000, no, that can't be right. 25,000 words a year. That's not enough. You must write more than that. 50 weeks. Oh, us book people aren't very good at math, so are we? <laughs> 5,000 words, so that's 20,000 words a month. And there's 80,000 words in one. So it's four months, which is basically about how long it takes me to write a book. So, yeah. So every four months that adds up to a book. Yeah. So you write yeah. about three books Obvi- a year. No, I write one book a year, but I spend an awful <laughs> lot of the year doing other things like editing books because, yeah, so that, that I say 80,000 words is a draft. Yeah. So obviously there's a lot of work that goes into it before it becomes a book. And then I will start a book. Generally, I, I usually deliver at Christmas and then I start a book in March, but I start really, really slowly and I just sort of muck around really. And if somebody says, hey, are you free for lunch today? I'll say, yes, I am free for lunch today and I'll go out for lunch. It's sort of, yeah, at this point in the writing process, we're now in October. Now I, I turn down invitations for lunch and yeah, serious nose to the grindstone, getting on with it. And so what are you working on now, if you can say? Yes, I can. I just today reached the magical 200 page mark on yeah, book 18. So I could yeah, I pretty much say I've written 17 and a half books as of today. And it's, yeah, it's very different. It's actually, it's actually based, funnily enough, on the dreaded house that I had to live in for the eight months when we were having our house renovated with the weird people in it. But it's not really about that. It's not about bad neighbours. I felt like I kind of covered that quite, <laughs> quite substantially in the family upstairs. So it's actually about a man called Owen, who's just one of those guys where you look at him and you think, oh, you're a bit weird. I wouldn't put anything past you. You know, the, the sort of guy who makes you feel a bit creeped out and a bit sort of, oh, no, I don't, I don't like you. You're wrong. But I wanted to get inside the head of a man like that. And he is accused of something he didn't do. So it's, it's a book about injustice, really. Yeah. And that should be coming out next year. Do you feel any pressure now that you are such a best-selling sort of in the limelight type of author that like there has to be some sort of message or anything other than entertainment and thought-provoking literature? No, I don't think, I don't feel like that about messages or thought being thought-provoking at all, which is why it sometimes really stumps me when I'm talking about my books and people try and kind of wheedle out some sort of messages and and just like, no, there really isn't. Or the only pressure I put myself under is to be entertaining. My biggest fear is that someone's reading one of my books and they're bored. So that's the the pressure that I have is that I'm going to write a book that's boring or that's not as entertaining as the last one. And, you know, it's it's that sort of pressure rather than I should be writing about big themes and big issues and making people think about things. I don't necessarily want people to think about things. I just want them to feel a bit creepy, feel a bit uncertain, feel a bit scared, feel a bit frantic to get to the next chapter. So yeah, that that's my main motivation. I think providing that escape for people is one of the most 
you know, generous things you can do. (laughs) Honestly, really, it's like you get people out of their own heads. That's what the best thing a book can do. Just get them to escape, right? (laughs) That's the only thing I'm any good at. So that's just as well. (laughs) I watched a video of you on Facebook somewhere, and I'm sure this must have been an older video, but it said that your books had not been adapted to film. Is that even possible? Correct. At this current moment in time, when my career first started, there was a little flurry because I was a big hit over here. And so I got a little taste of people running after you with sort of option money saying, well, we and none of that never happened. And then it all went very, very quiet for a very long time. And now my career has taken a little upward peak again. And I've currently got four books under option three in Hollywood. Amazing. Yeah. So three I don't know statistically if I've got three under option statistically surely one of them's got to come off I don't know so yeah the family upstairs is under option watching you is under option and I found you is also under option oh good it would be lovely if it did happen I don't know if I could handle the intensity of watching a movie of this book. I don't know. Uh, (laughs) No, I'm kidding. I mean, I would, but whoa, that would be intense. (laughs) Yeah, it would be very intense. (laughs) Do you have any advice to aspiring authors? Oh, it's really hard because there's, there's, there's two things. There's, you've got to be able to write and you do need some sort of evidence that you can write So when I was writing my first novel, for example, I was sending chapters as I wrote to my friend who I had that amazing life-changing conversation with. And she kept reassuring me that I could write. She's going, no, 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 you can write. This is brilliant. Just keep going, keep going. But I don't know how you get that. I don't know how, I'm not sure not everybody can get access to someone who will give them the truth about whether they can write or not. Uh, But of course, there's only one way of finding out whether you can write or not, and that is to to try writing. I think it's very important for anyone setting out to write a novel for the first time to bear in mind that it's really, really, really difficult. Even if you're writing something quite lighthearted and funny, just structuring a novel is really, really difficult. Keeping going, keeping the momentum going, not losing faith, seeing the big picture. It's, it's, it's incredibly difficult. So you have to sort of go into it with your eyes open that number one, you may not actually be a very good writer. Number two, even if you are a brilliant writer, it's still going to be incredibly difficult. And beyond that, even if you're a brilliant writer and you manage to write a whole book, it may not have been the right book for the market. So I don't know, that all sounds very negative. The positive side is, <laughs> the positive side is that it's yeah, it's a numbers game and it's it can happen to anyone. And it's kind of there's something slightly magical about the publishing industry. If there's no formula. I think people think there is a formula, but there isn't. And that's what the publishing industry is always looking for, is that thing that they didn't know they wanted until it suddenly appeared. So yeah, I, I would say sort of go into it as a realist, but also just keep a little bit of that sort of magical optimism alive as well. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for all of your time coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and for all of your amazing novels. And I can't wait to read the next one. Oh, I can't wait to finish it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you. This episode has been sponsored by Book of the Month Club, bookofthemonth.com. Enter code ZIBBY to get your first book for $5. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. 